Hey guys, it's me again. Uh, I'm, it's been a hell of a week, man. It's been, it's been a lot of fun actually to uh, record some of the last podcasts. And I'm super excited to, um, to share those with you. And this one, this one as well. Um, <laughs> Prime Minister Ehud Omer, that's pretty cool. Um, so do me a favor. I'm gonna ask you right now to shut this off and share this episode on your social media right now. And then come back and then have a listen it was a really fun conversation with uh, with Ehud. Um, I wish we had more time, but uh, who knows? Maybe we'll do it again. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Venezuela. I was in Venezuela three or four times. Wait. Including. Can we just move the mic closer? Including. Yeah. I was. At a. Uh, I was the. Wow. Thirty years ago was not my first time. 30 years ago, I was a special emissary of the Israeli government. I was a minister okay. to the inauguration of Carlos Andreas Perez, second time as president of Venezuela. I, I left when I was four hmm? or five. So What? I left when I was four or five years old. So He was elected. He was president years before. And then he was elected again after a period, you know, because they, at that time there were no two terms in South America. Okay. Only one term. Okay. So I came, uh, I'll tell you exactly, it must have been in 1990. 1990. That's right when my family left. Yes, because uh, I remember that uh, I was there and Jimmy Carter was there, and, and uh, Castro was there. Uh, it was a big event. He was elected second time after a few years of time that lapsed between his first term. Okay. And I asked, what is the reason that he was re-elected, or elected again, after he already uh, served one time? I mean, what, what was he such a good president on the first time? <laughs> said, no. He was a big gunner like all of them. But since he already was president and he became a billionaire, they believe that now that he's uh, been elected again, he will not steal from the uh, government because he has got enough money. A year later, I came again. At that time, he was arrested while being president. While being president, he was arrested. Wow. On what, on what charges? On corruption? Uh, corruption, stealing money, whatever. I don't know. But I remember that I became a very, um, very, how I would say, I would say it, uh, noticeable, okay, in this uh, event, because uh, on the first, the, the Mirafiores is the... Uh, is the residence of the president of Venezuela. It's the big palace, right? Okay. And in the patio there, which is spacious, there were hundreds of uh, guests. And I was standing on one corner, and the then vice pres president of America, uh, in, in 1990, uh, what was his name? He was... Uh, it was Bush the first, right? The Bush, the senior Bush. Right. Uh, I remember his name in a minute. Anyway, he was a good friend of mine since he was a junior congressman. Okay. I was, I was elected a lot earlier than him. 
And then he visited me a few times and he became as a, as a senator also. So he saw me from the other side of the uh, hall. So he was yelling, standing like that and yelling, all mad, all <laughs> mad. Everyone was a little bit surprised. What is the vice president of America doing, yelling, yelling at him? So I started to move and he started to move. And so they Was this Dan started. Quayle? Hmm? Dan Quayle? Danny Quayle, yes. Okay. Dan Quayle. The guy who and, couldn't spell potato, right? Hmm? He couldn't spell potato? That was the... Okay. Uh, <laughs> look. Anyway, he's screaming your name. Hmm? He's screaming your name and the... So, you know, they all uh, parted to uh, allow him to go move forward and to meet us. So everyone was... Those who didn't know who I was, you know, were curious. Who is this guy that the vice president of America is, you know, yelling and calling and, and coming over to him? Then the next day, there was this big formal ceremony in the uh, auditorium okay. in uh, whatever. And Jimmy Carter noticed me, and I knew Jimmy Carter again years back because of, you know, he was involved in the Middle East, and since then yeah. he used to come quite often, and every time he came, he met with me, somehow he decided I'm a hope for the future for whatever. So he came uh, and, and uh, talked with me, and so we were standing there. So Fidel Castro didn't know who I was, but he <laughs> wanted to touch base with uh, Jimmy Carter. So he joined in. So everyone was looking, what are, who are these, uh, who is this guy that both Castro and Carter are <laughs> standing with? Him? Anyway, Venezuela. This all so, happened in Venezuela. <laughs> so Anna, Anna Rotkov, Anna and Eliezer Rotkov yeah. were my friends since a few years before when I came to speak for the uh, Karen I saw. Tell uh, Back then, so this was in the, you said 1990, right? Yeah. What was the relationship between Israel and Venezuela? Yeah, very good. Very good? Yeah. Carlos Andres Perez was a socialist, but... But even back then, Israel was still sort of no. a socialist country, no? No, yeah, no, well, Israel at that time was already under the... Uh, there was, I think that at that time, we still had a national unity government. Right. With labor. Right, okay. So the general perception of the Israeli government was right. Important. Wow, did you did you know at the time what that what that meeting was like? That Fidel and Jimmy Carter and Dan Quayle and it was. You just <laughs> yeah. Look, I I knew all of. Look, by then, in 1990, I was a, a senior minister in the Israeli cabinet. I was already 17 years member of parliament so you know i had the experience I, I was not a rookie or a newcomer yeah so so you kind of knew what was going on in that meeting oh nothing just bullshit <laughs> <laughs> you know, just schmoozing uh, carter probably wanted to know when are we going to make peace with the palestinians and when castro understood who i was he stepped aside because he didn't want to be seen with the uh, senior minister from Israel. Uh -huh. He was very unfriendly to Israel until the very end. I was once invited by the mayor of Havana to Cuba. As prime minister, as no, mayor of Jerusalem? No, I was at that time mayor of 
mayor of Jerusalem. Okay. And I was invited by him, by the mayor, because the mayor visited Israel and he was my guest in Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, there was an Israeli, a middleman, Israeli middleman, very, very prominent Israeli. He subsequently became a minister in my cabinet. They, they, uh, one of the former founders of Mossad, uh, Rafi Etan. Yeah. He had a huge business in Cuba, and he became. I don't know how friendly he was, but he was known to Castro, and Castro every now and then talked with him. What 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 is a huge business in Cuba? He had farms there and farms, uh, yeah, okay. farms, big farms. Because uh, I mean, Cuba is not a huge economy, so yeah, a, no, a huge a, business, a huge, not not huge economy by by national standards, but for one person <laughs> from another country to have a few hundred acres of uh, vegetables growth and uh, wow. you know this was uh, and and uh, very very um, very um, very significant okay so uh, so he asked me to host the mayor of Havana he was friendly with the mayor of Havana and I hosted him and then he sent me a letter an official letter and, and invited me to visit Cuba okay Havana okay Cuba, and I agreed. But uh, obviously, when the mayor of Jerusalem goes to anywhere, including Cuba, he goes with an entourage of security guys and so on. Yeah. So, uh, so they had to get. You know, it couldn't be done behind the back of anyone because the security entourage uh, has to be coordinated with security there, and so it becomes. It goes through the channels. Uh, bureaucracy up there, right? So uh, uh, Rafi Etan came to me and said, "Regrettably, uh, Castro does not approve of your visit because uh, he says that uh, you know he can't he can't allow it. He can't be seen hosting a uh, major yeah, figure. Yes, the mayor of Jerusalem, the Jewish mayor of Jerusalem, the Israeli right. mayor of Jerusalem. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. I so." Uh, on the walk home uh, to school today with my kids, I said, hey, you know, your Abba's going to go uh, talk to a former Rosh uh, Hashanah, former prime minister. Oh, sorry, I said, do you know who I'm going to talk to today? Because I was excited to, to talk to you. And my eldest son said, uh, Michael Jordan? I said, no. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, you're not at the top of his wish list, but... Um, but it's still really cool that but I'm, I'm not on the top of my wish list. Also, oh, <laughs> you know, if I had to meet uh, with myself or with Michael Jordan, I think that for I'll take a break and meet with Michael Jordan. <laughs> so, well, let's do it, you, the three of us, then. Um, no, so, but it's still really cool to meet you because you know I'm fascinated by by you and your life. Obviously, you've had a hell of a life, man. Still, right? Um, and like one one of the kind of the, one of the questions that I've been wanting to ask you is like what kind of a person dreams of being a prime minister you know that's not a normal ambition or dream right look when I became prime minister or when I was close to become prime minister when I was vice prime minister yeah I, you know there were guys that said yes we remember you from 30 years ago 40 years ago when you were in high school when you were in the yeah you always say that you will be prime minister. Really? Nonsense. I never did. I never thought at that time. 
So what, what were you like? You, you were born in Israel, right? I, I was born in Israel, so I studied in uh, Israel. And what was life like growing up as a kid? Uh, I grew up in a, in a, a small township in Binyamina. Right. Now it's uh, bigger, but at that time, it was a thousand uh, residents lived there. It was in the periphery. And Israel, in the 50s uh, of the 20th century, was a very... Uh, uh, very backward uh, in terms of its, uh, uh, you know, standard of living. Uh, like, how would you how would you describe we, life? Uh, you know, for someone to have a private car at that time in Yamina <laughs> was quite an achievement. Uh, and not until I was eighteen did my father have a private car. Okay. And, uh, or, and most of the times when we had to go to Tel Aviv or to Haifa, there was a, a, a train uh, line uh, crossing Binyamina, mm-hmm. which, by the way, in recent years, turned, uh, was a major trigger for the expansion and development of Binyamina because now the uh, trains are going, uh, they are faster, and there are uh, trains every 15 minutes, there is a train to Haifa or train to Tel Aviv. So suddenly, and uh, to go by train to Tel Aviv takes 22 minutes. So uh, it's um, something that um, uh, many people uh, like to be able to live in the country, uh, you know, in a private home, uh, not with the uh, noise and the uh, whatever, uh, in a big city, and they can go to work uh, by uh, a very comfortable train. 20 minutes, you're in the center of Tel Aviv, and uh, 20 minutes back yeah. in the afternoon or in the evening. and uh, It's uh, wonderful. So this is now, uh, when I was young, you know, going to Tel Aviv was like you know, a big event, uh, or going to Haifa. Uh, and... Uh, at that time, there was no TV in Israel. Uh, there, there was uh, one uh, channel, a radio channel, uh, that broadcasted news three times a day only, the uh, national channel. So, and what was on the other on the other hours of the day? What, what were they playing? What well, no, they, they were playing music. They had okay. programs, whatever. But, okay. but, uh so there was one radio. Was very, yeah, very, very simple, very simple, very basic. Not anything that uh, can be matched with the opportunities that you have today, no matter where you live in the uh, farthest corner in the of the world, certainly right. Right. Uh, in Israel, with all the other facilities that we have, with their uh, technologies and uh, sophistication, you know. Whatever. So um, I remember that when I was when I was um, fourteen or fifteen, I asked my father to, as a present, to have a subscription for Newsweek. Newsweek. Yes. Okay. Now Newsweek. You know, for me, was the gate 
to the outside world. Right. Music was like, you know, opened up my eyes to what's going on outside of the small, tiny little spot where I uh, come from. Uh, Did you have this this desire to have more than... I was than curious. I was curious. Yeah. Not that I had any desire. Anyway, just to come back to your original uh, question. Only when I was a member of parliament and I became very much involved and I knew all the big personalities, you know, the beginning... You know, when I just uh, was uh, elected in 1973, that's 50 years ago, <laughs> uh, I didn't know much. I started to understand. The more I understood, and the more I was active, and the more I became famous, and then the more I was going up, you know, places, I became a minister. Yeah. Obviously, you know, I started to ask myself, okay, what's next? And then I said, I looked around and I said, well, actually, why not being prime minister? <laughs> and I knew, I knew that I would be prime minister. Really? Yeah, I knew. Why? I, How? Because I thought that I, 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 I could uh, match anyone that may have been uh, a contender and that uh, there was no reason that I would not be able to take it through. And obviously, when I was in 1993, I ran for mayor of Jerusalem. This was a personal elections. So, you, you know, it's like like uh, the, uh, the mayoral elections in Israel are personal. You may be, you have also a, a, a faction in the city council. But the mayor is elected in direct elections. Right. And I was running against the legendary mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Kolek, who was by then 28 years mayor of Jerusalem and was known all over the world. And you thought you could beat this guy? And when I, when I uh, presented my candidacy, I ran a, a, a poll, and I get... I got in the, he got in the poll 63% and I got 13 or, or 12 or maybe even less. Yeah. And by the end, I won by 62% and he had uh, 35%. So, uh, I mean, I defeated him overwhelmingly. But there was an absolute surprise. This was a big shock in Israeli politics. No one anticipated it and no one believed it. Yeah. It can be done, yeah. and so on and so forth. I knew throughout the campaign, I knew that I would win. Throughout, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but, but you know. Honestly, I if, if, if I think about that, like, okay, so you take on the Mission Impossible, beating the guy who's been in the office So forever. I figured out that if I could beat Teddy Kolek uh, right. in personal elections and go 63 or 62% of the world, the next time I ran, there was someone else running against me. I, the margin between him and me was more than 40%. <laughs> okay? So I figured that uh, the time will come that I will bid for the prime ministership and I will win. Because you you pulled off the impossible and, and that just gives you this because crazy I I confidence? Knew, because, I, first of all, I think that I, I, I knew how... I think that I was a good executive. 
this is something that most political leaders are not. Uh, Meaning? Like what, what makes a good executive? Being a big executive, a good executive is someone that knows how to handle things, how to, to uh, take decisions, how to make sure that when a highway has to be built in the city, it will be built in the city in a short time, it will be comfortable for the population, it will uh, improve the quality of life. Go to Jerusalem and see what happens there. At the time that I was mayor, uh, I built 100 new school buildings in different parts of the city in 10 years, like 10 new schools every year. 100? Yeah. Wow. I built, I built uh, the uh, Cross City Highway, which is now named after Menachem Begin. Right. Begin Boulevard, right? Yeah. From the south part of the city to the very north part of the city. I built it in three and a half years when the, the equivalent in Tel Aviv, Ayalon, took maybe 18 years to build. Uh, until it was completed. And since it was built, and I'm talking about 94, it's almost 30 years, the Begin Boulevard, it was not uh, uh, blocked for one day for repairs. It was built already at that time at a very high level in order to avoid any needs for uh, you know, uh, maintenance uh, works. Uh, at some point later. I built tunnels in the city. I built a uh, light rail, which has changed completely uh, the center of city. Uh, but these are things that you didn't have any expertise in. Like you're not a yeah, civil no, engineer. You know how to handle things. You know how to take decisions. You know how to... Uh, I was before. I was Minister of Health. Also, I did well. As but, so so I, Anyway, I had... Of course, it sounds presumptuous and a little bit arrogant, you know, for someone to say, you know, I know how to do things. Sometimes there are guys who know how not only to be public speakers and, uh, you know, uh, performers uh, and actors, uh, but they are also right. uh, good decision makers. Right. And the combination of both is very important. So I, I am fluent in Hebrew, I'm fluent in English, you know, I, I, I can speak, I will not be, I will not be embarrassing, I will not be embarrassing uh, for the constituency I represent when I speak with foreign leaders, when I go overseas, when I am on television and so on, on in America or in other countries. But also, I am a doer. I think that this has been a, the very significant impact uh, of my uh, yeah. constituents. But okay, so you you say that taking the right decisions yeah. is what separates a good political leader versus a bad one, or uh, are you right a mediocre? Uh, first of all, being able to take decisions at the right time, okay, decisively, okay, to so, uh, to not to uh, not to fool around. So. Okay, so how does one person, uh, the way I, I imagined, uh, the way I imagine uh, the mayor of Jerusalem or a prime minister of Israel, they wake up in the morning and they've got 10, 15 different crazy consequential things going on in their minds. You know, people waking up all around Israel trying to blow up the state. You've got the economy to run. You've got uh, relations with all sorts of foreign powers. I mean, there's just so much stuff going on. How can 
one person possible. So you can't. That's impossible, right? So you have to. How can one person be president of America? Right. How can one person be prime minister of Great Britain or Israel? How many one per? Yeah. How, how? But you know, let's face it. it. Everything that depends on human beings is humanly possible. Hmm. Now it's just a matter of what kind of a person you are. You know, for instance, I, I tried to be, and I think I was, I hope I was. I, I, I think that this is what I hear sometimes when people talk to me about my performance in the different positions that they were acquainted with me. They worked for me or they had other contacts with me because of my uh, job at the time. Mm -hmm. I was the Minister of Finance, Minister of Health. It's okay, you can Prime brag. Minister. It's okay. Pardon? You can brag, it's okay. No, man. so I say, <laughs> no, I, I, I'm not. So, so what I try to do all the time is to be very effective, not to waste time uh, to fool around. Uh, not to have long sessions uh, where everyone can talk for hours and so on <laughs> and so forth. I thought, I said, by the way, subsequently when I became prime minister and I was prime minister and people asked me, what makes, you know, what is, you ask, you know, mayor of Jerusalem, prime minister, you wake up in the morning, there are so many things. Yeah. First of all, you have to sleep well, which means that you have to go to sleep and you make sure that no one will disturb you. And I made, a, there was a special instruction in the prime minister's office that they don't call me in the red telephone, you know. I still remember that when uh, Hillary uh, was running for president against Trump, she asked this question which was very widely discussed or, or mentioned. She said, who would you like to answer the telephone at 3 a.m. when there is an you know, <laughs> urgency? Okay. So I said, I gave instructions that no one should, uh, I mean, of course, they, the people couldn't call me directly. They had to call my office and, you know, the army, the uh, secret service, uh, something. Uh, we need to speak to the prime minister. There was an instruction that no one can call me before they talked to my chief of staff. And when my chief of staff heard why they need to talk to me, and only if he approves, which I counted entirely on his judgment, only if he approves that this is urgent and really important, then he will uh, allow uh, uh, to wake me up. And so... How many times did that happen not when you're... Not too many, not too many, a few times, a few times. Wow. See, there, are many, there are many things that the prime minister should know. He can know it at 8 o'clock in the morning. And, he and, doesn't have to wake up at 3 o'clock. There is not much you can do at 3 o'clock. And you're a prime minister that oversaw two wars, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, during the war, sometimes I was awake until very late at night because there were events taking place yeah. and I needed to, uh, you know, to handle it. But there is no need. The same is for sessions. Whenever there was a session, okay, uh, including the cabinet meetings, not more than two hours, two and a half hours at the most. And uh, in, in ordinary sessions, much mm. less than two hours. I used to say to participants, listen, 
Don't start and telling me all the history. I don't understand. I don't want. It doesn't interest me. <laughs> Tell me only what is essential for the decisions that I have to take now, and start from the from the end. Don't start from the beginning. Mm. Beginning I know already. Mm-hmm. Start from the end. What do I need to know now? And when someone was speaking more than ten minutes, I would say, "Excuse me." I looked at the watch. You talked two ten minutes. It's enough. I understood what you want to say. So I was very, very uh, punctual in the sense that I knew what I wanted. I didn't waste time on on niceties in these, you know, working sessions. Yeah. And uh, I said a prime minister should have eight to ten meetings a day. Every every session has to be prepared in advance by his staff, and so that they uh, they uh, uh, bottom line, you know the uh, the uh, decisions uh, that needs to be taken were prepared in advance, and uh, if sometimes we needed to take counsel with. Uh, 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 other participants like uh, Minister of Defense or Minister of Foreign Affairs. So during the session, my staff would, you know, talk to them and uh, uh, make the fine tunings of the uh, yeah. bottom line. And at the end of the meeting, everyone knew exactly what he needs to do, what is his task, what is his responsibility, and let's go to the next meeting. And so I could. Do a, a, a lot every day. I could, you know, cut all the unnecessary bullshit, uh, bullshit right? <laughs> and go forward. And at 8 o'clock, in most cases, unless there was, you know, which happens occasionally, you know, uh, there is a big conference, the prime minister has to come to, to uh, make a speech and so on. So I come uh, later. Normally, on a daily basis, I was at home at 8 p.m. I'd have coffee with my wife uh, and schmooze a little bit about, you know, what was the day, you know, yeah. things. Yeah. And then I'd say, okay, I'm going to the TV room. I called my office and I said, get me all the calls that I didn't answer to the day. I permitted myself to call in Israel until midnight. I said, if someone called the Prime Minister, he will acquiesce if the Prime Minister answers him even at 11.50 p.m., <laughs> okay, <laughs> on that day, which, you know. Well, and also, I watched soccer on television, and I smoked a cigar, and, uh, you know, I was trying to uh, to remove for my agenda, everything which was not uh, necessary that uh, had to wait for another day if I could do it on that same day. Did you ever feel overwhelmed by the work? No. Wow. No. Really? Well, sometimes, of course, there were important issues, and the uh, issues, you know, stayed with me uh, uh, for you know, days, but but... I was not overwhelmed. I knew what I need to do. I I thought that I I knew what is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I have calculated my uh, uh, moves in the direction which I thought was 
the right direction. Of course, I had stuff that I could count on. And uh, I think it, it, it's... Look, I don't know, and I, I don't think that I need to uh, suggest how effective I was as a leader, as a prime minister. But uh, I think that this is widely accepted that my staff uh, in the prime minister's office at the time that I was prime minister was the most efficient in comparison to every government in Israel, in Israel's history. Mm. And certainly in comparison to the one that, you know, followed me. How, how did you deal with all the, you know, politics is a really dirty business, right? Like there's people trying to take you out all the time, right? Because they think they can do the job better than you. They have, you know, different ideas. They don't think you should be empowered to begin with. So you've got all these responsibilities. You're delegating all, all this stuff to your staff. And then, and then meanwhile, you have people just scrutinizing every single decision you take and trying to take you out, right? How do you... Uh, look, first of all, politics is a competition. Yeah, but, but a vicious. Ongoing competition. Yeah, it can be sometimes vicious. It was vicious, certainly against me. The problem that the, 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 the reason why I was exceptionally uh, um, feared uh, was because of two things. Number one, people knew that I'm in business, and people knew that when I say that we have to make peace with the Palestinians, and that for the sake of achieving peace, I'm prepared to pull out from most of the territories, they knew that I mean what I say. And this has become the focus of enormous efforts and an unlimited investment of you know, money and, uh, and uh, uh, work, uh, investigative work, to try and topple me. And subsequently they, they did well. <laughs> That's what they did, uh, my political enemies. But this was in order to, the excuse was to m stop me from surrendering the holy land of the Jewish people to the Palestinians. Um, you, you s correct me if I'm wrong. But the way you saw things was, if we don't, if we don't make peace with the Palestinians and pull out or come to some sort of agreement, we would be a binational state. We'd be apartheid. This has been your thinking, yeah. right? Do you have? I, I I still have this thinking. Right, and do you think you ever? Day. But do you ever consider the other, the, your opponents, who say this is suicide? If we pull out, the the Palestinians will eat us alive. Yeah, look, I've been through and through and through. Yeah, I've been at the time that I became prime minister in nineteen two thousand and six. It was thirty three years after I was originally elected to parliament. So I've been already eight times in Parliament. I was two times, ten years, mayor of Jerusalem. I was a minister in more ministries than perhaps most of the former prime ministers of Israel, by way of comparison. So, uh, yeah, I knew everything about 
the different attitudes and opinions yeah. and, and fears and anxieties and uh, suspicions concerning the uh, uh, political solution. And, and I had uh, a very, a very firm uh, understanding of what I think needed to be done, and uh, I was absolutely uh, determined to carry out. But when, when you look at your what your predecessor did, right, um, Arik Sharon, he pulled out of Gaza, and then yeah, I was a major uh, factor in uh, right. pushing Sharon to do it. Right, right. Okay, it was originally actually my idea of pulling out on oh, a yeah? mutual basis. What, sure. what was that story? What was the story behind the, the pullout? That it was your idea, you said? Look, we, the government was looking for somehow how to address itself to the growing international pressures and domestic pressures within the state of Israel to do something. And I thought that the best thing to do is to start to start a process that will ultimately end up with the Israeli withdrawal from 95% of the territories. Mm. Okay? So uh, uh, I got the opportunity to spell it out and to start the process when Sharon asked me to replace him when he was prime minister uh, on the 1st of December 2003. Okay? Which is about 20 years ago. There was uh, scheduled uh, the annual uh, uh, memorial for Ben Gurion in the Negev. Okay. He was buried. Okay. Now, according to the Israeli official protocol, this is a major formal event. Okay. With the participation of the prime minister, the president, and the prime minister, first prime minister of Israel, Ben Gurion, the greatest leader we ever had. Okay. The guy who uh, proclaimed. The establishment of the state of Israel. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, a, a great visionary. So Sharon was sick at home. He had cold and a high fever. He just couldn't go the next day. And at very late in the evening, uh, his staff called me and he said, You know, Prime Minister wants you to replace him tomorrow because he can't come. So I said, okay, I'm just curious what he was going to say in that uh, speech. Can you send me over his speech? They sent me the speech, and I saw that this was a very conciliatory uh, speech. So I decided to take it one or two steps forward, (laughs) and I wrote my speech, uh, which basically uh, say that uh, between peace and the greater Israel, we have to choose peace at the expense of greater Israel. Okay. Now, when I stepped down, I mean, after I concluded my speech, I went back to my seat. On my right-hand side was Simon Peres, and on my left-hand side was uh, the then speaker of the Knesset, subsequently the president of Israel, uh, Ruby Rivlin. Mm-hmm. So Simon Peres said to me, you know, when I said, came back, he said to me, an historic speech, and Ruby Rivlin said, a disaster. This will break up the Likud. Now, the truth was that it became a talk of the town. When I came back to Jerusalem, this is like four hours from Jerusalem, deep in the south, yeah. where Ben Gurion is buried. Right. And uh, but when I came back, I understood everyone in the Knesset spoke about it. I was vice prime minister. So how did I, you... How did you 
like you, the the prime minister had a speech and you went isn't that well, uh, he asked me to speak <laughs> and and uh, I'm not a, you know I'm not a kindergarten kid I'm a vice prime minister I'm a very uh, very experienced uh, political uh, person but doesn't I was twice elected to be mayor of Jerusalem first time no. a right wing person was elected by uh, mayor of Jerusalem of course of course my, my, my guess my question is more like doesn't that put the government in a spot where the prime minister wasn't intending to put it oh well, I thought that I, I understood what the prime minister meant by his more moderate speech okay but I decided to help him by by make by giving him the opportunity to side with me <laughs> or to uh, say Olmer didn't speak for me yeah he Oh, interesting, okay. But what happened is that the next day I gave an interview to the leading paper in Israel uh, for Friday. Yeah. Friday in Israel is like the Sunday editions of uh, the American uh, right. papers. And in that, uh, in that um, uh, interview, which was published... On Friday the 5th of December um, 2003, I said, we will have to pull out from the overwhelming uh, part of the territories, including in Jerusalem. And uh, it, it will be inevitable uh, that we'll have to do it on a unilateral basis if necessary. And uh, if we will not do it, Israel will become South Africa and will be accused of apartheid. And when the day will come that the Palestinians will say that they don't want to uh, have uh, they don't want to have uh, a state of their own. They only want they want to be part of the state of Israel. They accept the Lieberman. Uh, concept of greater Israel they only want one thing equal voting rights that's all I said when the day will come the day will change their the essence of their campaign from an Algerian type confrontation which was terror and, and war into a South African type which is equal rights Israel will be done Israel will be gone. Sure. And, and this, was, this was the headline of Yediot Ahronot, front page, Friday. The whole country was talking about him, and it turned out, I understood later, that it spread all over the world. The vice prime minister of Israel talks about first time in the history that a man in my senior position talked about dividing what is known or understood to be the division of Jerusalem. What, what was the conversation like before with Rabin and, Om, and uh, Barak? They never talked about dividing Jerusalem. Never talked about it, okay. No. So that was like an atomic bomb spreading all over. And for hours, you know, it was all the talk shows on the radios everywhere. And Arik didn't call me, and I didn't call him. Uh, towards uh, noon or slightly after, I got a telephone call from his chief of staff, 
And he said to me, listen, you, chapeau, this is great. What you said is great, and so on and so forth. And he said, Arik is going to call you shortly, but it will be a good, a good call. And I called me. And Arik used to be very sarcastic sometimes. He had this very special personal style uh, sense of humor. So he calls me and he says, Hi, Ehud, how are you? And I said, I'm fine, how are you? He said, I have two great uh, things to tell you. <laughs> First of all, I am recovered. So for the weekend, you can relieve yourself of the sp responsibility of running the country because I'm back in office. <laughs> okay, I said, thank you very much. So it will be a very joyful weekend. <laughs> and second, he said, I just need to know, where do I catch you? He said, I'm at home in Jerusalem. He said, yes, I understand that you're in Jerusalem, but where in Jerusalem? Hmm. In the part that you gave to the Palestinian <laughs> or the part that you keep for ourselves? <laughs> so I said, well, I guess you know. So anyway, he said, actually, I thought that uh, you said some very meaningful things. Okay? So this way he was teasing me, but then he said, you said some meaningful things. Mm. And we said, okay, let's stop, uh, the, the, you know, on the uh, yeah. weekdays. And we had a session Monday, I think, uh, a long personal talk. Uh, and I understood that he is ready to move. And the rest is history. I mean, he then, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, unilateral steps, pulling out from Gaza, pulling out from certain parts of the West Bank. And he eventually presented this a month later the unit the uh, disengagement and the rest is history but was he already was that kind of brewing already in in the i think i think i have to be look i think that it came uh concurrently that is i think they had in mind these thoughts of what shall we do in order to move things somehow? You know, what, 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 what should be the attitude of the government, the, the action of the government? What should we do? And we more or less came to the same conclusion independently. At about the same time, you know, it doesn't matter now. Right, I'm right. not trying to look. The ultimate responsibility was his, and the, the political... Uh, decision was his, and the 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 courage was his, because it required of him to do something that very few leaders are capable of doing. Which, in my mind, is the ultimate criterion by which you judge the greatness of political leaders. Okay, and Begin is in a good example for it. The the ultimate test for greatness of a political leader is the ability to do the opposite of everything that you promised to do. Normally, what? we yeah, normally we judge uh, political leaders. We used to say about them, "Oh, he's a great guy. He keeps his promises." It's a bullshit. Menachem Begin said that when he becomes prime minister, we will annex all the territories, right? And Sinai will forever be part of the state of Israel. And Sharm el-Sheikh 
uh, without peace is better than peace without Sharm el Sheikh, right? Okay. And what did he do? Right, he gave the all great that Menachem Begin mm-hmm. pulled out from every part of Sinai, from Sharm el Sheikh to the last centimeter, and also he never annexed any other territories. So he did the opposite of everything that he promised he would do. Rabin is the same with the Oslo Agreement. And and Arik Sharon. Arik Sharon, the Arik Sharon became internationally respected, not because of the wars that he was leading as a great general, an outstanding uh, field general, nothing not because of the fact that he built all the settlements, but because he had the power and the courage to dismantle the settlements that he built when he found out that this was the right thing to do at the time that he was prime minister, he had to take responsibility. Yeah. So I think this is something that must be understood. At the end of the day, to say that someone was a great leader because he kept his promises is, you know, is simplistic and is shallow. The real test of leadership is the ability, when you come to the conclusion that the realities require you to do things which are opposite to everything that you thought you want to do, mm. but this is the right thing. So this is overriding. And you do it, even if there will be so many people that will be upset with you or disappointed and will say to you, how come you did it, you know, you didn't keep your promise. Got it. That, that uh, makes it know, more clear. Menachem Begin yeah. is revered forever in the history of the state of Israel because he pulled out from all of Sinai and made peace with the Egyptians, which is a cornerstone of the strategic stability and strength of the state of Israel in the last 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. Arik Sharon was not revered for anything else but for the fact that he had the courage to do the opposite of what he was identified with all his life. Well, I mean, he was a revered warrior before he was prime minister. Okay, he was revered uh, as a warrior. He was revered amongst many for his de- dedication to build, to settle, to... Yeah, uh, yeah. And what did he do? And which won him the admiration of the international leadership and the international community? Yeah. The fact that he was prepared to pull out and yeah. to, uh, to dismantle settlements. Okay, so... Interesting. So, But we, we can still even broaden this concept out even a little bit further. So you... as a, what the, You're saying the test of greatness is when the facts on the ground mean that you must change your mind as a political leader and therefore burn the promises that you made. But, but, you, but it's not, so that I say, you have to break your promises. No, 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 you have, to, you have to follow what you makes sense. You have to have the courage to break your policies if you come to the conclusion right. at a time that you are in the ultimate, you hold the ultimate responsibility. Right. Right. And you reach the conclusion that what needs to be done is opposite to everything that you promised you will do. But this is what needs to be done for the sake of the, and the good of your country. Then you have the courage to do it, and you don't say to yourself, you know, you feel uh, uh, pity for yourself for having to uh, turn around, and and you don't do it. 
No. So, but this is super interesting because you know something like the Gaza pullout, right, or, or pulling out of the settlements, or is on the one hand that you have that. Um, the calculus of if we continue down this route, Israel becomes an apartheid state. And then there's also the other route, which just takes an even broader historical view, which is Jews, um, they need to be very mindful of their own sovereignty and security and taking any kind of risks with that is super dangerous as history has. Uh, so it really depends on, your, on, on how you view that, right? Of course judgment that I had was that this is a risk that can be taken. Why, why do you think not that? Been, had it not been uh, a risk that we can afford to take, I wouldn't have proposed it. So why, why do you think that is? That, because that we are strong, we are powerful, we have no strategic threat that we can't handle and that they had risks of uh, keeping the territories uh, and becoming an apartheid country uh, boycotted by all the international community and by becoming a binational uh, state is something that is much worse than the risks that we need to cope with if we do it. So that's a very s- the simplest decision. Uh, the uh, the, uh, the uh, decision is, is, is simple, but uh, it's difficult. Is a s- simple decision because the choice is between one right. direction or another direction. But it's heartbreaking. It's <laughs> very difficult. Okay. Yeah, listen, you want to be prime minister? I don't. <laughs> you don't want? Okay. <laughs> no, I. I uh, that that's one of those decisions where I. How, how does how does one really do what you did and make a decision and say okay this is the direction we're going? It's so you have to be honest with yourself. But it's also like l- looking at history and saying I know which way is best, right? And 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 look, you have to have a certain historical perspective, right? Yeah. Okay, right. I think that I have a broader historical perspective today because in the last decade I had more time to read. Uh, more history books uh, about uh, the uh, the uh, challenges that uh, uh, some of the greatest leaders of the world had to face and how they handled these challenges and how they uh, reached uh, so the more decisions. You, the more you read the more conviction so, you have uh, obviously you know the more you read the more you know about world history about history of other countries about the uh, pains of other leaders when they had to take decisions and uh, particularly important decisions, crucial decisions. But do you think that decisions. do you think that there's something that is analogous to Jews and the Jewish state? Yeah, yeah, yes. L- listen, every country has its history. Sure. What we uh, when we look at our history, of course, for us, our history is very unique. For um, British, uh, English people, their history is very important for them. Yeah. And, and, and so you can ask these questions in relation to every country and its history. The Americans with their history, Japanese, Russians, whatever, uh, you know, uh, it's very hard for us to understand. Uh, I definitely do not approve of what 
the Russians did now uh, with Ukraine entirely, entirely uh, against against them. But we can't ignore completely the way that they look at their history. Right. In 1939, they signed, in 1938, okay, they signed the famous Riventrop-Molotov uh, agreement because they wanted to make sure that Germany will not attack them. Mm -hmm. Then they were attacked, Barbarossa, and uh, I mean, this was the, uh, the, the greatest war that the Russians had maybe in the history of Russia. And they, they still bear the pains of the memories of the destruction and the, uh, the loss of millions of people in this terrible war against the Germans. Now, after the Second World War, uh, the, uh, the Americans created a military alliance with one purpose, against Russia. This is the purpose and this is the raison d'etre of NATO. Yep. So, you know, okay, you look at it from our point of view and you say this is a non-democratic country, a dictatorship. But on the other hand, they were allies of the United States of America. The way they look at it, they say we were allies of the United States and right after the war, they created this military alliance of all of Europe against Russia. Well, against the Soviet Union. Against Soviet Union, worse doesn't matter. No, worse. but well, I think the, I mean there's a crucial distinction, which is, you know, you have a, a, a but system. But the makeup of Europe and the creation of the Soviet Union mm -hmm. was part of the understandings of Russia, England, and the United States after the war. Yeah. This was not something that was created one-sidedly by the use of military force of the Russians against others. Right. It was coordinated, it was understood and, and, and uh, uh, elaborated uh, in, in the contacts between Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin. Yeah. Including, I think, the last of their meetings was in Yalta. Yeah, uh, each one had their own sphere of influence. Krim. Yeah. Uh, in the uh, the uh, uh, in Crimea, uh, so after the war, America created the NATO alliance, which was aimed to be against Russia. So the Russians said, "I mean, what do you want from us?" And then subsequently, of course, now I don't say I take the Western side. Okay, <laughs> make sure that uh, you don't misunderstand me. No, no, I get it. Because I think that the fears that the Russians, that the uh, Western countries in America had of Russia, of the Soviet Russia, with the, uh, with the uh, uh, nuclear power that they have acquired and with the non-democratic nature and the expansion of uh, the Russian, uh, the Soviet empire for a major part of Europe was obvious. But... On the other hand, you know that when the communist uh, regime collapsed, there was a very intense cooperation between America and Russia in the building up of the new Russian uh, Federation without all of the uh, Soviet uh, republics that were part of Russia, uh, part of the Soviet Union. And uh, it was, uh, I mean, 
there was a very, very intense and intimate coordination between Shevanadze, at that time the Secretary of State, and uh, Gorbachev, the uh, uh, Prime Minister of uh, the President of Russia, and uh, and uh, James Baker. And still afterwards, the Russians said, you guys wanted to put American missiles on our border. Why? Look, they don't come with clean hands because they do the same in many places around the world, including next to our border. And I used to say to Putin, you complain about America, what about you? You put your missiles next door to us. Why? So he had all kinds of arguments. I'm not going into it right now. But what I want to say is that now, when you talk about the history of a country, you must understand that everyone is very selfish about his own history. Sure. And, and that the fact that we have our history doesn't mean that, uh, uh, there is, that this is the ultimate uh, way of how things could be judged. They could be judged in all kinds of ways. Okay. I have to make sure, and this is what always guided me when I was prime minister, that under no circumstance will I expose Israel to any existential danger. But if I have the capacity to protect Israel and to make sure that no one will threaten the lives of our country, and at the same time I can show some flexibility, some generosity, and to be forthcoming towards the uh, uh, achievement of uh, compromise and peace, this is how I should do it. I'm tempted to, to argue against you. <laughs> Pardon? I'm tempted to argue with you right Why now. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> we are in Israel, right? This is what we do. So, look, you were, you were negotiating then with the Palestinian Authority, yeah. right? This was around 2008, was it? Six, seven, and eight. Six, seven, eight. So this was after already Hamas won... Uh, Hamas won the elections in the early right? in January of 2006. Okay, so already then you had this split leadership thing going on there. All right, and what about us? Don't we have split leadership also? I mean, not like that, no? Not like that because we are a democratic country, but we are very, very rapidly sliding into being non-democratic. Okay, but I'm just talking about back then, right? When, yeah, you, were, when you were in then, charge. Already then there were, look, Everyone now complains from the government side about the uh, the uh, protest and the marches of protest. What did they do in uh, during the disengagement? What did they do? Uh, didn't they do the same? Didn't they say right. that they will? They threatened that they will. They 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 will uh, uh, confront the Israeli army and so on. And they were fighting with soldiers when they came to dismantle these settlements. And they said, you know, we came to these settlements on behalf of the government. Bullshit. Who sent them? Which government sent them to the settlements? No government sent them. Governments, right or wrong, acquiesced with their presence there. But they were never emissaries of any government of Israel. And they were fighting the government. So... uh, we are fighting uh, now in order to, uh, but there is a big difference, which must be understood. Mm-hmm. 
the Israelis are divided. It's true. There are many, many, many Israelis sure. that wouldn't want to serve in the territories to protect the settlers, particularly the violent settlers in the territories, you know, of the, the use of the hills mm -hmm. and so on. Did anyone ever say that he will not serve in the territories because he disagrees with the policies? Because he disagrees with the settling in the territories? No, there was not any protest movement. So when the, pol pol the political decisions are legitimate, even if they are unacceptable, you have to acquiesce. You have to be obedient. Here, what happens is that for the first time there is an attempt to change the fundamental basic principles of what democracy is all about. And this is something that is not similar or comparable to anything that was done by any other government which took decisions which were accepted by a certain part of the population and completely rejected by others. Well, so I want I want to I want to ask you about this current government and Netanyahu in a second but um how much time you got? 10 10. Okay. So uh man, 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um well, let's see how best to use that time. So forget the peace stuff. I mean, okay. This is going to be a bit awkward but you know, you're you spend time in jail, right? I mean, what what the hell was that like? Unpleasant. <laughs> but you got time to write. I wrote my book, yes. I wrote my book. What what I wrote fourteen hundred pages, but then they were, we edited it so it it only is uh, nine hundred pages in Hebrew. In English it's a much shorter version because in in English I wrote only about those aspects that I thought were of potential interest to the international community and many of the things that I wrote in the Hebrew version were of relevancy to the Israelis. In Israel it was a um, bestseller. It was sold I mean, in tens of thousands of... Uh, I can imagine, but what, how... Yeah. how uh, I mean... What was there any? Were there any positive aspects to being in prison? Or no, really, it's a serious question. Look, I was a victim of a conspiracy by that was financed by billionaires, Jewish billionaires from overseas, in cooperation with the uh, gang of thugs led by Netanyahu, in order to try and stop me from. Uh, pulling out from territories, which are the sacred territories of the Jewish people, the West Bank. You're talking about people, the American Jews that supported it, is one that uh, spent hundreds of millions of dollars to overthrow me, Sheldon Ederson, which created the, uh, uh, the daily paper, a free daily paper, uh, Israel Today, do you have proof? For one? Or what do you mean I have proof? He didn't hide his... Uh, he made it public that he wanted this paper in order to... No, no, no. That, that he was behind this conspiracy to get you, land you in prison or to stop you. Uh. Uh, 
he wanted to get rid of me at any cost. I can tell you that a very senior leader, I'd say one of the two, three most important people in the world, told me that Sheldon Anderson told him. You're a traitor. That I'm a traitor. George Bush, yeah. It's, it's on your Wikipedia page, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's on your Wikipedia page. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's what, uh, so, you know, do I have a proof? Uh, and, and, uh, and there were some elements uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the judicial system that were unhappy with me because they didn't like the Minister of uh, Justice that I appointed. Okay. Who is a distinguished uh, person, one of the most outstanding uh, guys and certainly uh, a world-renowned uh, jurist, uh, professor for uh, law in the Tel Aviv University, the dean of the faculty, a uh, distinguished guy. So there was some kind of cooperation that, that uh, and, uh, and I think that at least some of those that took part in this campaign against me regret it very much because they know what is the uh, cost that uh, we are now all uh, required to pay. So uh, can I, I, I was having coffee with a friend this morning and I said, I'm going to yeah. go talk yeah. to Ehud Olmert. And he said... And I was I wanted to ask him about corruption and politics and stuff stuff like this. And he said, you know, what happened to Ehud? He said more or less what you're saying that you got railroaded. It's a, it's a terrible thing that happened to you, and and part of the reason why um, we're you know the, the the political system is so well. What's going on right now is is dates back to what happened to you, like that yeah, that, that you were set up and I was set up. BB is the opposite. Every possible concession and discount that could be made and more was made in his favor by the same system. He is, he is uh, complaining that he was set up by the judicial system. Yeah. This is nonsense. The attorney general, attorney general made every possible effort, dragged it for four years before he took a decision. With me, after one hour investigation, one hour inquiry with me, they decided to have an, an, uh, uh, an early uh, witnessing session and they required that the Prime Minister even before there was any decision to, to uh, take any legal action, before they knew whether there is anything of substance, they already said to court that they wanted the Prime Minister will sit on the defendant bench in court. Because they were, they were anxious to topple me. But do you for not, whatever reasons, doesn't matter now. Do you not have any sympathy for when Netanyahu goes up there and saying, you know, they're out, this is a conspiracy? Well, he was, well, he, Netanyahu should have been in jail already for years. Oh. Already. And, and for what? The story with, with, uh, with um, Milchen is a typical, classical story of bribery. Mm. And he was not even indicted for bribery on this. Right. I was con convicted for accepting a 60,000 shekels of political donation, which no one ever claimed that went to my pocket. Never did. I never got this 60,000 donation in the first place. 
But anyway, that was the conviction that I uh, was convicted for accepting 60,000 shekels political contribution. If that's true, that's crazy. That's it. I was acquitted for uh, anything else. Okay. Okay. Now, Netanyahu got hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of personal presents that were he going got, yeah. to his own pocket. Doesn't matter whether he was smoking the most expensive cigars or drinking the most expensive champagnes. Hundreds of thousands of dollars and jewelry and all of these. And uh, there was an artificial attempt that someone would say that he was uh, the best friend and so on and so forth. He may have been a, a good friend, but there is no doubt that Bibi was involved in helping this very good friend to solve, uh, to solve his uh, visa. problems, the visa problems, yeah. the television investment problems, mm. uh, and other things. So, I mean, there is no comparison. And, and Bibi was not even indicted on this particular uh, event for bribery. So Netanyahu got all the discounts that one could get. And to think that, and I decided on, on, on my own, without, you know, there are all kinds of stories, urban legends that are going through, and there is no way that you can uh, fight with it. But I decided, when I figured out that no matter what I say, no matter what the facts are, that they are going to indict me, I said, I don't want to be indicted when I am prime minister, and therefore, I resigned before I was indicted. I was indicted a year after I resigned. Mm. And Bibi Netanyahu right. has, has turned it into a battle against everything in an attempt to destroy the judicial system, the prosecution, the courts, everything. Do you think he has like a messianic complex? Like if I go down, the no, state goes down. No, he does not have any messianic complex. He's selfish to the utmost degree. He's selfish. He doesn't care for anything but himself, he and his family. And we all know what kind of family he has and what kind of. I, don't, I only know what they tell you me. You don't know. It's better for you that you don't <laughs> know. But the, most of the Israelis know. Yeah. And uh, and therefore, I think that uh, th this is what drives him. No care for the state of Israel and no feeling of messianic uh, mission. Just a personal Bibi uh, care mission. But how does, one, how does a person like that, who only cares about himself and what his wife and son tell him, Accomplish what he has accomplished, right? Like the Abraham Accords and uh, what, is, what else? What I don't else? know. Look, the the countries run pretty well when he was around. The running country run pretty. No, no, well. no. Forget right now for a second. I'm just talking about. Uh, look, I moved here in 2010, which is right around the time he took over. Yeah, when you I mean, came in 2010, that yeah. was a year after I stepped down. The four years that I was in charge of the Israeli economy were the best uh, economy that we ever had, and it was moving up, starting with, with my government. Uh, the uh, security was the uh, best that we ever had. I've decided to destroy the atomic reactor in Syria. Bibi is talking about fighting with the Iranians, doing nothing. I did 
Uh, and I was fighting with the Iranians in many different ways that are not, uh, can't be uh, disclosed, obviously. And, and uh, the social situation was different. Our international status was the best that one could think of. Just I'll give you just one example. Yeah. Look, Bibi is not invited to America, right? Right. Okay. Bibi was fighting with Obama, so the relations with America are going back now years with t tension and intensity and, and suspicions and, and, and whatnot. With the exception of the period that Trump was uh, president, even Trump reached the conclusion that most of us did when he said, fuck Bibi. He said it, not me. Yeah. So I'll remind you that in 2008, December of 2008, we had the Kaslid operation in Gaza, yep. in which more Hamas guys were killed in this operation, in one operation, than all of the Hamas that were killed from then until today. Okay, this was a very brutal uh, 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 war in terms of the Hamas. A day after the ceasefire, all of the leaders of Europe came to have dinner at the Prime Minister's, uh, Israeli Prime Minister's residence. Angela Merkel, uh, President Sarkozy, Gordon Brown, Prime Minister of Great Britain, Berlusconi, uh, Zapatero, and uh, Topolanek, the President of the EU, and many foreign ministers, mm -hmm. they all came to Israel, never before, never after in the history of the State of Israel. At the end of a war, which under normal circumstances, causes the, uh, all the international community to criticize Israel. And in that particular time, they all came to Israel and they uh, 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 right. talked to the international networks and said Israel has a right to do what they did. Right. Now, this is something that you can say, okay, I did. What did, did Bibi do? He vouched to uh, destroy the Hamas. He said when he was running in 2009, I am not like Olmert. I'll destroy the Hamas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Destroy the Hamas. <laughs> so, well, he, he pisses off people, and, and I guess we'll end with this, but he pisses off people because he's perceived as like anti-peace, I guess, in a way. Yeah, he's not perceived like anti-peace. He's anti-peace. He yeah, doesn't but, want peace. But I think that what, what's missing, and maybe I'm wrong, but is that he has that darker view of history where the... the, the you have to be super cautious with relinquishing any control over Jewish sovereignty and destiny and stuff like that. We don't have any sovereignty in the territories, and we shouldn't have any sovereignty in the territories. And Menachem Begin and Arik Sharon and all of us understood it. All of us understood it. And Bibi Netanyahu is a victim. is is held uh, by the uh, by, and he understood it. He didn't do anything to to uh, establish Israeli sovereignty in the territories when in his first term in 1996 to 1999. The reason why he is allowing now the extreme elements to take over is because this is the only way that he can save himself from going to jail, right. not because this is what he thinks is the best for the country. Mm. And that's the reason why he should go to jail, because... If that's what he's ready to do, only in order to save himself, he doesn't deserve to be where he is now. How about this? Let, let's let's end like this. I think, I wish he and I voted for the good. I wish that he would step down because I, I think it's really dangerous All to right. have to have a leader that's 
going if to court. You, if you wish that he will step down, yeah. the rest we will leave for another discussion, as long as we understand that this is what he needs to do. <laughs> okay? Thanks, Ode. All right.